You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Lord God, thanks for gathering us together for worship this morning, and thank you for this time now in your word. Uh, Together we praise you in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. In my last teaching series, we were working through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, particularly with an emphasis of the Sermon on the Mount in the light of the secular age. Now that's straightforward teaching from Jesus in Matthew 5 through 7 and kind of gives the shape of what discipleship in his kingdom looks like. The next segment of collected teaching material in the Gospel of Matthew are parables. And I think there's a reason why Jesus changed communication strategy and why he went into telling stories. Not too long ago, I had a sequence of teaching sessions in a church outside of Birmingham. And I was there, too, doing the Sermon on the Mount and uh, found it very frustrating because it seemed that uh, it just seemed like I was not connecting with people at all in that teaching session. And I left one evening saying to myself, they don't need teaching, they need stories. And I think if I had just sort of told them stories, they would have connected and responded. And I was trying to do sort of straight, direct teaching of Christ's outlay of the kingdom, and it was not connecting. I think that's something of what Jesus experienced. And that's why I moved into parables. Now, Matthew 13 is the chapter I'm going to focus on uh, this week and next week. And then back in January when I come, we'll uh, work through more parables. There are seven parables in Matthew 13. Matthew kind of takes those parables and he collects them, he gathers them up. And uh, I think it lays out the strategy that Jesus used uh, in communication because I think he was about to reach a communicational impasse. Now, how many of you have just come from the nine o'clock service? We heard a parable in that service. The parable of the rip current as a parable for lostness. Uh, Andrew told a story about his own personal experience of being caught in a rip current. And you remember, I mean, he he concluded by saying, we don't need a swim coach, we need a lifeguard. Now, I resonate with that illustration because our middle son, Andrew, is a professional lifeguard, was uh, for a number of years in California and then set up a lifeguard team on a very dangerous beach in Costa Rica in Dominical. He's rescued literally hundreds of people from rip currents. And, uh, you know, that that is a great depiction of lostness. Now, an added dimension to this of this morning, what if Andrew had just gotten up and told the story of the rip current? 
no scripture, no punchline, nothing said at the end about what this means in terms of lostness in the gospel. But he had just told the story of the rip current. What would your reaction have been? Yeah, we might have missed the point. You'd probably be a little upset with him. What's he doing telling stories? But in the context of Scripture, as an illustration, it made perfect sense. There was You understood immediately what he was doing. Now, the value of the story is it gets past our defenses. If you're there and lost, and you haven't come to Jesus as Lord and Savior, that story, you get caught up into it, <laughs> like you're getting caught up into a rip current. And you start to hear your own situation in the light of this analogy, this comparison that he's doing. And it may be a way of getting past your spiritual defenses. And that's, I think, what Jesus is doing in the parables. He's circumventing those defenses. Now, that's especially important in our day and age where I think, generally speaking, popularly in culture, there's been a giving up of a sense of truth, true truth, capital T truth, that this is universal truth. This is true for everyone, everywhere, regardless of tribe and culture and ethnicity or whatever. It's true. And that kind of true truth is what I believe the Bible is all about. And instead of the Bible shaping our understanding of the world, so often in this culture, the world is shaping our understanding of the Bible. And so how do you get at the truth? Jesus decided that getting at the truth meant telling it slant, getting past one's humanistic defenses or religious defenses. Now, I think the reason why he got into parables is kind of explained for us in the narrative in Matthew chapter 12. It's explained in that narrative, I think, in the sense that uh, he has come to loggerheads with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. Every time he speaks, he draws fire. He can hardly get anything out without them objecting and opposing and now plotting to kill him. Even his own family, and this is the, the last narrative episode before Matthew 13, the conclusion of Matthew 12, Jesus' family comes to him and Jesus says to his disciples, well, you are my parents. You are my brother and sister. You're my family. And so his family had not yet accepted. And in another gospel narrative, it says that the family had come to take him and because they thought he was going crazy and take him home. So both in terms of the religious leaders and in terms of family, he has come to kind of an impasse. But he's going to continue to teach. So in a way, he voids religious topics 
avoids talking, avoids talking about the law specifically and goes into these stories. Do you remember the, uh, the Marine commander and a few good men at the poignant scene of the concluding trial where the Marine commander played by Jack Nicholson and he's at the breaking point now. He's been made to come to the breaking point and he shouts out, truth, you can't handle the truth. And that's, while not maybe said in that tone of voice, is not unlike our culture. Truth, you can't handle the truth. Well, the, the chapter 13 begins, uh, well, on your outline, and I'm, I'm not going to kind of move through it point by point because I'm making these points, I think, as I go. But Emily Dickinson's poem on Truth Told Slant, I think, is uh, a good place to, uh, for me to, to come down to and read. Uh, you see it in the box there, the text box. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies, too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise is lightning to the children eased with explanation kind. The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Jesus did not have the option of giving up and not talking, not teaching, not communicating. So how then does he find a way around it? And parables are that way. In chapter 13, and verse 1, that same day Jesus went out of the house and he sat by the lake. This is in Galilee. Uh, in 2015, I, I've had my one and only visit to Israel, but I can picture this in my mind's eye. Coming out of the house, he sat by the lake, and such, a large, such large crowds gathered around him that he got into the boat, and he sat in it. And while all the people stood on the shore, there is a cove in Capernaum, a natural cove that uh, if you did sit in a boat, the uh, acoustics of the ge geography would really aid in the communication of the word off the water. water. Uh, so you can, the, there's a, a logic to Jesus doing this, but what uh, spiritually what I like about this picture is the calmness with which he took the frustration of essentially failing in communicating. The resistance of the religious leaders, the unacceptance by his family, and what does he do? He sits in a boat and he speaks to the crowds. Uh, he does not allow himself to reach a communicational impasse. Now, I'm in the business of teaching people. Uh, that's what I do all week. Um, and sometimes as a teacher, I feel like giving up. I'm not getting through and... Um, and I don't, you know, if you're a teacher at all or if you've been in teaching situations, if you've been in law and tried to communicate, I mean, uh, you can identify with that. There's some times where you just go home at night and say, I really don't feel like doing this. I'm not getting through. 
but Jesus doesn't have that option, and I really don't have that option either. <laughs> uh, so you find ways. Um, Parker Palmer, in his book, The Courage uh, to Teach, which I have my preaching students read as The Courage to Preach, um, uh, he talks about the, the student from hell. And uh, a student just could not get through to. And uh, obviously seemed to be very disgruntled. And he had to take a ride to the airport. I'm telling you a parable right now. <laughs> he had to take a ride to the airport. And who should be the student that was assigned to uh, pick him up, take him to the airport, was, quote, the student from hell. And uh, same initial reaction, but as they drove to the airport, somehow Palmer asked the right question and the guy started talking. And uh, ended that drive to the airport with a great realization for why he was the way he was. And it opened up a relationship and a friendship that changed there, uh, changed the whole teaching dynamic in that case. I'm just impressed by Jesus. We should always be, I think. Um, his uh, calmness. Remember, this is the same sort of uh, scenario with the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus goes up the hill and sits down, gathers the crowd and the disciples around him, and calmly communicates, even though the culture is so frustrating. In verse 3, then he told them many things in parables, saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. Now, you know these parables so well, some of you. Um, I hope they're new to somebody. And as he was scattering the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came, and he ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on the good soil, where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty, thirty times what was sown. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. If you turn the page over, you have the description of the three. Um, but we're not there yet. We're not at the description, his interpretation yet. He, the question uh, he has posed, uh, the, the challenge, whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, let me try to summarize uh, somewhat quickly. Uh, as soon as Jesus mentions seed, it can trigger or should trigger in the person who's grown up with the Old Testament as his crowd, his audience has, that, hey, this may be about something deeper than just a farmer planting seed. Because the prophet Isaiah, whom Jesus will shortly refer to, the prophet Isaiah has a lot to say about the holy seed as a symbol of the kingdom of God. And the holy seed that sprouts from the stump that's left likening Israel and its remnant to this stump. And from that stump, the holy seed will rise. And that is speaking of the Messiah coming. Well, okay, you say, well, that's a lot to read into a farmer going out and casting seed. 
But my suggestion to you is that the analogy of the seed is something that should suggest a deeper meaning to the story that Jesus is giving. Verse 10, the disciples came to him and asked, why do you speak to the people in parables? Why are you speaking so cryptically? You're just telling the story. You're just telling about the rip current. There's no context for this. You've got the illustration without the exhortation. How am I supposed to understand what you're saying? And Jesus replied in verse 11, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. So a division is described by Jesus between the crowd and the disciples. And he speaks of the secrets of the kingdom. Uh, In Greek, the word is mystery, the mystery of the kingdom. And it's interesting, those that would speak of the truth as a mystery versus truth as revelation, a mystery that's revealed, kind of divides the crowd and the disciples. But the secrets of the kingdom has been given to you, but not to them. Now, is God being mean to the crowd? He's already put it to the crowd. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. I think what Jesus is saying here is the receptivity of the truth is something that you and I don't control. Nor should you and I be so frustrated that we cannot communicate the truth. God is in charge here. God really is in charge of people's reception, perception, discernment, understanding. That doesn't take away the responsibility of the hearer. Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. That that responsibility is not taken away. It's kind of a, uh, it is in a way, a mystery of just how that works. God responsible for our receptivity. We are responsible for our receptivity. Both of those truths held in tension. I think a positive tension. The secrets of the kingdom of heaven. You know, what's the big secret of the kingdom of heaven that's behind all of this is the crowd's expectation of Messiah is radically different from the true Messiah. They expect a king. They expect heads to roll. They expect the politics of this new Israel that Rome will be kicked out. This is what they're envisioning with the Messiah. But the secrets of the kingdom of, it's more like Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, the one who will come and will bear our iniquities and the punishment we deserve will be put upon him. That's a radically different envisionment of the Messiah. Those are the secrets of the kingdom that will be unfolded and that Jesus is getting at. Whoever Whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And this is why I speak to them in parables. And then Jesus quotes from the prophet Isaiah. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. Now, 700 years before Christ, the prophet Isaiah came. And he was given a very hard task. And for close to 
50 years, Isaiah's task was to preach to the people of Israel basically the gospel, and they in turn, over his long tenure as a prophet, resisted and rejected. Even though he was a very clear, he was speaking in his own language, he was uh, addressing them. And this, uh, you know, Isaiah 6 is that famous passage where I saw the Lord high and lifted up. And we've used that many times when we reflect on worship. Uh, And in that passage, his assignment is given. Remember, Isaiah says, here I am, send me. And in the sending, this is the this is the message. This is the work that he's going to be doing. And he's told, you know, this is this is the impact of your prophecy, Isaiah. You will be ever hearing, but never understanding. You'll be ever seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused, hard. And they hardly hear with their ears. And they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and then I'd heal them. And Isaiah, you're going to just keep giving this message, and nobody's going to respond. That's, you know, Isaiah 55 talks about uh, God's promise that his word will not return to him void. And then Isaiah 28 is a description of the people's criticism of Isaiah. In fact, that criticism is really interesting because the criticism is such that they confront Isaiah by saying, you're treating us like kids. You say, do this. Don't do this. Obey this. Don't obey this. Don't do this. We're not kids. Nevertheless, they weren't understanding. They weren't getting the message, no matter how hard Isaiah tried to communicate. In verse 16 of Matthew 13, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. And then Jesus does this, which he does not do with all the parables. He explains it. He interprets it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. Now, who's the sower? Yeah, the one who's speaking the parable. He's the sower. He's sowed the seed. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand, I, as a teacher, do not want to in any way diminish the importance of understanding. And I don't want to circumvent um, the mind by appealing too rashly or quickly to the emotions. I want mind and heart to go together. Uh, I don't want to manipulate people in the teaching. And I think that's exactly what Jesus is emphasizing here, that what's key is understanding. The uh, English word understanding comes from an old English word that means uh, not not what you might immediately think, that I stand under this truth, although that's not a bad way to, in a sense, interpret it colloquial. But uh, understand is more centered in this truth. Understanding means that 
I revolve around this truth. I am placed in orbit around this truth. So it's not just cognitive comprehension. It's not just intellectual understanding. It is life understanding. The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. And this is what the seed sown along the path, that rocky path where nothing can uh, penetrate and germinate. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word at once receives it with joy. So there's the path, the hard-worn scrabble path, and then there is the rocky ground next to the path, presumably, in which the word is received but and received with joy, but since they have no root, they last only a short time. It might be helpful on the page, uh, on the on the study sheet, to look at these because you you don't have the text in front of you. The seed that falls on the rocky path represents people who've heard the gospel. Everyone has heard in this story. They may even be part of the church. But when it comes to the word of God, it goes in one ear and out the other. The secular and religious idols and ideologies of the world have hardened the soul and enthroned the self. They just don't. There's no place for the word to to even begin to germinate. The second group, the second soil here, accepts the gospel enthusiastically. But the seed has fallen on rocky ground. It springs to life in the warmth of community, in the inspiration of worship, in the joy of being a part of something bigger than themselves. But no sooner does it sprout than the pressures and persecution of the world choke the life out of it. The third type. The third soil here accepts the gospel and it takes root, but it has fallen among thorns. And the hearer believes the gospel is true. If he were in a philosophical argument, he might strongly agree with the word of God. But in his day-to-day living, the anxiety of the age and the pressures of money, which specifically Jesus refers to, put a stranglehold on the word of God. Now, the fourth soil is fertile, but you've got three to one, a ratio of three to one. Rejection to reception. Uh, might Jesus be telling the disciples this story not to discourage them, not to even express his sorrow over the three to one ratio of rejection to reception, but actually to prepare them and to encourage them? The vision of a popular political messiah who would come and shake down Rome and reestablish the temple, that in that popular vision would have had to be close to a hundred percent following. Everybody's on board. This though, this cruciformed uh, vision, this uh, headed to the cross messiah, one that really nobody had ever connected the Old Testament prophecies leading to that. Two, this is a parable that prepares you for that kind of vision of the Messiah. A three-to-one ratio of rejection to acceptance. 
Helmut Thielichy is a uh, was a German pastor who lived through World War II and then became a very well-known evangelical, classically orthodox uh, pastor in several cities in Germany. Uh, one that some of us have greatly appreciated his writings, and he's written a book on the parables entitled The Waiting Father. He says of this parable that Jesus taught it with great sorrow. Sorrow over the rejection. I'm not so sure, as much as Tilaki is, is a wonderful uh, communicator of the Word of God, I'm not so sure that this is told with such sorrow. As much as told with sensitivity and in preparing the disciples for the inevitable rejection of the truth. Because it ends on such a positive note, the good soil understanding, that's the fourth one, uh, letter H, good soil understanding, the fourth soil here, understands the word. The key word for the reception of the gospel is this grace-induced understanding. Derived from the Old English, it means to take our stand at the center of the gospel. The person who understands makes the gospel message their own. It means standing under Jesus, Jesus' teaching in obedience. This is not a purely intellectual grasp of the truth. It's a life commitment framed by the Sermon on the Mount. It involves taking up our cross and following Jesus. Uh, that fourth, um, verse 23 of Matthew 13, if you're following, but the seed falling on good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. And this is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. And that would indicate that the abundance of the fertile soil productivity, that fertility a hundred times, sixty, thirty times, compensates for the three-to-one rejection. So in the end, Jesus is sort of saying, you know, it's, there's no loss here. There's only great abundance and great gain. And so the question is, you know, how do you cultivate the good soil understanding of the Word of God? And maybe let's spend the last five minutes or so with these questions uh, at the end. How is the church cultivating the good soil understanding of the gospel? In a culture that is maybe a and maybe this is optimistic, a three-to-one rejection to reception. But in a culture that has given up on universal truth, uh, at least uh, find hard to, uh, to find it widely accepted and recept receptive to uh, on a university campus, um, giving up on that kind of truth, how is the church cultivating a good soil understanding of the gospel? What do you think? I've not actually created an atmosphere for good dialogue. <laughs> I've been just speaking to you. Uh, I mean, the church is a broad term even now. Mm -hmm. Even the church, capital T, truth, is right. kind of uh, debatable in some True. denominations. Mm -hmm. And so I'd say... At some level, I don't know that the church today has cultivated a good, a good soil understanding of the gospel. 
What if we what if we take out the generic church and put in the advent? <laughs> How is the Advent cultivated good soil understanding of the gospel? I think biblical teaching is a huge piece of that. Just preaching the truth, mostly in love, but allowing people to hear the truth. If I, and this is a, a question that puts you on the spot. Forgive me ahead of time. Do you think that we have this same sort of um, ratio? at the advent, the three to one, rejection to reception? That's kind of an unfair question, but um, it's certainly, um, there's different soils. The first thing you did is presenting the gospel. I would say that that's the beginning of finding the good soil. Some, some are not presenting the gospel. Mm-hmm. And it is being presented. Um, but and it's being presented every which way uh-huh. you can think of. Um, man, I've, uh, I've really been blessed this semester in my pastoral theology class. I asked Cameron to come one week and talking about youth ministry. And I asked uh, Zach Hicks to come and talk about worship and uh, the worship pastor. And I asked, uh, Craig was there. Craig Smalley on on Friday, and three very different men, three ministers of the gospel, who clearly cut them every which way you want. The DNA is of the gospel, um, and I'm just so proud of them as they reflect both themselves personally and reflect the life of this church, and. Uh, those are three different sectors, in a way, of this household of faith that they represent, and uh, the gospel is being communicated. I, I wasn't thinking of putting that plug in, um, but I mean that is one way the Advent is cultivating uh, good soil understanding of the gospel. What can parents do to nurture their children in the Word of God? Can I back up and ask you a question on the first one? Sure. Opinion question of you. Um, this three to one uh, is an interesting concept. To piggyback on your point, in your opinion, you moved in and out of a lot of circles. Well, how does that stand in all the churches, just in Birmingham or the country? Because I know there's churches that aren't preaching the truth. Yeah. Would you say three to one is in the church too? I do. Yeah. I, 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 and. Helmut Thielicke, whom I referred to earlier, uh, makes the point at the conclusion of his sermon on, on this particular parable that uh, all four, four types are in us. There's certain truths of the gospel that hit us like a path and it's not going to germinate. And then other, we enthusiastically embrace it, but over time lose interest in it. Uh, I, I mean, that's a good pastoral point. Your point about the state of the church, um, you know, just very briefly, I think it's sometimes um, you have to convince Southerners that they're not Christians. Because they really think they're Christians, but they don't have a clue as to the gospel. They don't really know or follow Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount could be... um, 
the Hindu Vedas, you know, as far as what they understand about them. Uh, and, uh, you know, I found that the coast, my experience in New York City and my experience in San Diego uh, has meant that oftentimes those that are in the church and come consistently, they, um, uh, they really have embraced the gospel because they've had to embrace it in the light of a more antithetical culture. Yeah, and the distinctiveness and the discernment uh, factors are there. Boy, this uh, we'll continue <laughs> next week. <laughs> I'm sorry. To your point on is the all four exists within us. I heard Tim Keller say one time, "I maybe get 20% of the gospel," and I think that that is true. If I truly believed everything about the gospel, I would not look like I look. Hmm. Mm-hmm. And I do think we fall easily on certain moments in different points. Yeah. Uh, I can understand that. Yeah. Well, may the God of hope fill you with all peace and joy. And as you put your trust in him, may your hope abound through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a good week. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.